0: or John Hubish, he is the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, uh, and he has a, a really interesting theory that he believes that uh, President Trump's tough talk on North Korea really can be uh, compared to uh, Ronald Reagan's tough talk with uh, the USSR back in the 1980s. Uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating theory. Obviously, he is very familiar with President Reagan. I also was hoping to talk to him about, you know, what... The, what uh, the Reagan Foundation does. Uh, so we are continuing to try and reach him as well to talk about his book and to talk about the Reagan Foundation, uh, which obviously continues to play a role years after uh, the president has passed. Uh, as we work on that, I do want to update you with a, um, a a story out of New York. Um, a blaze broke out at Trump Tower earlier Saturday evening uh, in New York City, uh, obviously, that's uh, right on Fifth Avenue. It's where uh, President Trump, before he became president, lived. He also had his offices there for years. Uh, it, the fire critically injured one person inside the building. Uh, the three-alarm three fire erupted on the 50th floor of the high-rise on Fifth Avenue just before 6 p.m. Eastern time. Uh, the president has tweeted about uh, the fire saying "It's um, 6.42 Eastern time, that the fire was under control, and he talked about the building's construction. Uh, he quote, this is the Trump tweet, fire at Trump Tower is out, very confined, well-built building. Firemen and women did a great job. Thank you. That's the president's tweet, uh, thanking the firefighters. Let me just get back into this uh, story here. But one person is uh, critical. Uh, also, three firefighters injured Um one person who was quoted in a number of the national stories is Brian Lawton, the former uh, NHL hockey player, uh, a Minnesotan, um, and he actually tweeted video of that fire. And so um, he it looks like he was on the ground actually shooting that, but uh, a very serious fire at Trump Tower in New York, uh, no word on the cause, one person critically injured and three firefighters uh, injured. So we will continue to keep you updated on that story. That's obviously something that's um, uh, of concern, and uh, because the president has lived there, and obviously the president is not there, uh, neither is the first family, the first lady, and uh, their son, Barron, uh, also not there, but uh, certainly a source of concern. Um, we are continuing to try and reach uh, John Hubush. He is the uh, executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. Um, coming up in this hour, we have got uh, Jane Kirtley. Uh, she is the University of Minnesota Media, Ethics, and Law Professor. Uh, she's going to be talking to us about cameras in the courtroom and why there is a push to get the very limited use of cameras in the courtroom out of courtrooms in Minnesota. But I understand that we do have uh, John Hubush, the Executive Director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation Institute. And so first of all, uh, am I saying your name correctly? Uh, John, Highbush. Bush. Hi, High Bush. Well, first of all, my apologies, sir, uh, and really it's an honor to have you on. Um, l- let me just ask you because I think people would be interested. Uh, tell us about the Ronald Reagan – first, before we get into the issue of North Korea and, and your book, tell us about the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute and what it does.
2: Sure. Uh, happy to, as Esme. The, um, the Reagan Foundation is the only uh, organization that President Reagan – Established after he left the White House. And it's a nonprofit foundation that uh, raised all the money to build the Reagan Library, the famous Reagan Library in California. And to this day, uh, we do many, many things in President Reagan's name. And our, our mission really is to educate uh, uh, people, uh, generations to come, about the philosophy and the vision and the values of President Reagan. So
0: we, we do that uh, pretty happily every day. And in terms of, um, you know, people visiting the Reagan Library, I mean, I assume you still get many, many, many visitors.
2: Oh, yeah. with uh, The Reagan Library is the largest and most visited by far of all the presidential libraries. Uh, we get about a half a million people a year, and uh, we have everything there from uh, President and Mrs. Reagan's gravesite to uh, Air Force One that President Reagan flew for Eight years that you can climb aboard, and a huge museum and special exhibits and events. We we have the Republican presidential debates there. Well, I and, and I you know, so, yeah
0: I saw I saw that necessarily the, the yeah. backdrop one of the backdrops was Air Force One I and which obviously was the Air Force One that was retired uh, because they have to keep you know getting new Air Force One so they're completely up to date. I didn't and I've seen that and it's it looks so impressive. I've not been to the library, but you can actually get on Air Force One. Oh sure! Oh, that's yeah. really you cool. You hop
2: on the yeah, you hop on the front and go all the way through the aircraft and come out the exit in the rear. And um, it's it not only flew President Reagan for eight years, but also uh, six other United States presidents, from President Johnson all the way through to President Bush forty-three.
0: All right, and you've had you know you you've been in business, you've done so many things, um, but you've also written a thriller. Um, yeah, tell us about yeah. That. I have. So the, uh, it's called the Shroud well, uh, Conspiracy. That's right. It's called the Shroud Conspiracy. My first novel,
2: and it's uh, sold really well as a bestseller last year. And uh, so, uh, the sequel to the Shroud Conspiracy will come out this August, and that's called the Second Coming. And it's a, a work of fiction. It's a novel. It's all about a uh, a, a atheist um, anthropologist who. Uh, sets out to prove that the famous shroud of Turin the burial cloth of Jesus Christ is a fake and in the process of uh, his uh, world worldwide search and his his um, his adventures uh, he comes to find that uh, perhaps it's not a fake and there's a, a lot of adventures that occur in uh, n- not only in uh, his mission but also there's a a change of self as well in him uh uh, it's a journey of faith as well. So it's called The Shroud Conspiracy,
0: and I'm um, happy to, to say it's done real well. Right. Well, that, that's, that's really good. Cool. And you've got the sequel coming out. It, it is interesting. I think certainly the Shroud of Turin has been the subject of so much fascination for so long, for so many centuries, and continues to be a source of fascination to this day. Yeah,
2: it's it stands as the most famous, but also most controversial religious relic in the history of mankind. Uh, You know, essentially half of the world believes it's indeed the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ, and there's an image on the the cloth that uh, looks like uh, the the image that uh, just about every Christian believes is the face of of Jesus Christ, the crucified uh, Christ. And uh, the other half of the world, um, many scientists included, believe it's a fake, and they, they believe it's basically an artist's rendition from roughly the the, uh, the Middle Ages, and, and there's been many tests and many studies done throughout the years that have made it uh, quite a controversial um, uh, um, artifact. And, and this book, The Shroud Conspiracy, uses the the this burial cloth as the central vehicle throughout the novel.
0: All right, you, you've really had such an extraordinary career. I mean, you were. Um Executive Director of the National Republican Sen- Senatorial Committee. You worked for um, uh, Senator uh, Elizabeth Dole. I, actually, uh, you, did you work with her both when she was in the cabinet, Labor Secretary? Yeah, I or, or- for,
2: I worked. I worked for Secretary Dole when she was the Secretary of Labor. I was her chief of staff. That was for President Bush forty-one. Uh, as well as I was uh, worked for her uh, running. Uh, a big piece of the American Red Cross when she was the president of the Red Cross.
0: Well, wow. um, let me ask you, you know, f- from where you sit, because you- you've had a-, a career that really has has put you uh, in-, in touch with-, with with really some of the greats uh, of- in American history and and in-, in American leadership in this past you know forty fifty years. You know what if Ronald Reagan were around today? What would he say? I mean, you know, for, for all um, when you think about sort of the divisions back then, it, the discourse was so much more. Um, I, I have to say, civil. I mean, you know, Ronald Reagan was such sort of a sort of an old-fashioned word, but a real gentleman uh, in correct. so many ways, and <clears throat> it seems like almost antiquated now to think back to that.
2: Yeah, I guess see, that's a good word, antiquated,
0: and I think a lot think of people miss it. it.
2: Yeah, yeah, they do, and uh, antiquated it might be the case, but you know, not that long ago. I mean, Ronald Reagan was in office, you know, roughly three decades ago. But uh, uh, it, the, the world has certainly changed in many, many ways. So, you know, in some respects, um, if you think back to those times, you you do have to remember that uh, while Ronald Reagan um, uh, um, was an, an incredible figure and a remarkable man. Um, when he came to office, uh, uh, it was a surprise to many Americans, just as it was when President Trump was elected. Um, He was a a, a real long shot until the final week of the campaign. Uh, Many in his own party uh, didn't admire him. Um, uh, You know, he was this actor that came from out of nowhere. And um uh you know and, and people used to uh, laugh at his credentials and make fun of him and, uh early on in his presidency and he
0: had been um, the governor of california yeah, but,
2: he had he had, yes. he, had, he, had he, he had some strong political experience but but certainly in the east he wasn't known quite well and uh, uh he he changed a whole lot of people's minds in the 8 years he was in office he did some extraordinary things, and he persevered, and he he was that honest and civil gentleman, and he, had a, he was an optimist with a great sense of humor. And while he never had uh, the, you know, control of both houses of Congress when he was president, he had an ability to find a way to bring disparate parties together and to achieve compromise that oftentimes brought to the United States incredible progress and economic prosperity. So to this day, many people want to try to compare president trump to president reagan and there's some that you couldn't find two individuals more radically different in terms of style and persona but there are some some comparisons that you can make with respect to uh, their policies and um so it's interesting to you know to to look back on those days and also to look at how president trump's conducting himself today.
0: Right. Well, I think uh you know Ronald Reagan famously said, you know, what was it the the 11th commandment or the, you don't speak ill of of your fellow republicans. Uh I, I may not have right. that exactly right, but that's the gist. Um, that's right.
2: Yeah, yeah, certainly he he was uh, he was all about uh, you know uh, he was a very civic minded man who who was about agreement with others and trying to achieve progress and and uh you know he uh he, he went about his business trying to make friends not enemies and he knew in order to get things done that would provide permanent and positive change for the country you had to find a way to work with others and and he did that through personal relationships you know the In this day and age, social media seems to, you know, it it connects us all, but I think it also divides us in many respects. And and, and in President Reagan's days, there was no such thing really as social media. And uh, so he had to work with the media that he had at hand at time to get his message out, and he did so magnificently well.
0: In terms of what you see, and we just talked about, you know, in terms of the style, certainly a, a radical difference between the two presidents. In terms of, um, you said that you do see some similarities in, in terms of, you know, the rhetoric on um, in, in foreign policy, and certainly you um, know one of President Reagan's most famous lines, "Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall." Um, you've had some some tough talk from President Trump on North Korea. Are there parallels there?
2: You know, um, well, first, in, in terms of parallels and rhetoric, if you had to uh, say, well, what's the most famous slogan uh, used by Donald Trump as both candidate and as president? It's, it's make America great again. And um, <laughs> you need only look back to uh, the campaign buttons of 1980 of Ronald Reagan. And what were they? Let's make America great again, <laughs> so uh you know President Trump knew that he he took President Reagan's statement and he essentially has trademarked it for baseball hats and many other things so if you you can start with similarities there as it relates to rhetoric, but no doubt from the standpoint of foreign policy, I think that President Trump has taken a page right out of President Reagan's playbook, and he understands. That in order for the United States to be a leader in this world, that we have to act strong on the foreign policy front. And and you're right. Just like Reagan called the Soviet Union an evil empire, uh, President Trump has no reluctance to use very similar language, uh, whether it be towards North Korea or Iran or or, or any of our enemies. Frankly,
0: hey, what I mean, what do you think Ronald Reagan would think or say? I mean, do you have any um, any thoughts? Well, yeah, well, as specifically as it relates to you know, let's
2: take for example one of the world's hottest spots, uh, North Korea. Uh, I think that uh, you know where there's a difference between uh, President Reagan and President Trump is um, uh, they they both would I think have the very same attitude with respect to uh, you know giving no quarter and and no respect really to. Uh, to Kim Jong Un and to uh, the you know the absurd uh, policies of a of a closed society and a dictatorship like that. So in that respect, they're similar. But I think where they're different is I don't think. Uh, while I, I I give President Trump um, a lot of kudos and I and I wish him only the best in this supposed upcoming summit with the North Korean leader. I don't think you'd find President Reagan agreeing right off the bat to meet with someone like that. He never. Met with Gaddafi or the Ayatollahs, or uh, you know, it was it took many, many months of planning and progress before President Reagan would ever even meet with a Soviet leader, for example. So, um, I, I think President Reagan was a little different than President Trump in that regard. Very he would handle. North Korea may be same from the standpoint of rhetoric, but very different uh, st- uh, strategically.
0: And certainly he, he had, you know, in terms of, of the staff, I um, mean, you know, it, it's difficult to imagine President Trump sort of ignoring the advice of a, of a George Shultz, Secretary of State, or kind of going off script, the degree to which yeah, the president think, does.
2: Yeah, that's uh, President Reagan, um, if he, he was famous for anything from uh, a White House staff standpoint, is that he surrounded himself with... Just uh, superb, high quality, very talented uh, people with a great deal of experience uh, in both domestic and foreign affairs, and he listened to them very closely. And uh, he'd acted in they and and he acted in consonance with one another. They sung from the same sheet of music, and uh, President Reagan communicated his vision to the American people according to, uh, you know, very well laid out communication strategies and plans. And, um, uh, you know, so there's a very stark difference between uh, the way he carried himself and the way President Trump does today, radically different styles and and also radically different uh, mediums at their disposal. There was... As I said before, you know, in the Reagan years, there you couldn't tweet, and you know, <laughs> no such thing as Facebook. But but yeah. he was a master. He would
0: he would have been very good at it, though.
2: Yeah, I think he I think he would have. Uh, I've often been asked that question: Would you know? Would President Reagan tweet if he could? And the answer is, uh, he certainly would if he had a way to communicate yeah. directly with tens of millions of uh, of the American people. Um, he would certainly. Well, he's do a it. great but the I, great
0: communicator. I, I mean yeah
2: that 's right, but but his message would have been dramatically yeah. different, and his tweets would have been in okay. consonance with a communication strategy on an issue.
0: well John Highbush, the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, thank you so much. Um, your current novel and it 's obviously still available, the Shroud of conspiracy. Fascinating to hear your thoughts on President Trump and remembering President Reagan, I think people probably listening are are feeling feeling nostalgic and yeah. and missing him and um I guess if you're out in the LA area uh why not visit the Reagan Library. I mean it certainly looks like something that would be just amazing to visit. Oh
2: it's an incredible place and it's a, a day long adventure there's so much to see and do and so anyone's interested they can just go to reaganfoundation.org or reaganlibrary.com and they can learn all about how to get here and what's what's at the Reagan Library Museum.
0: Right and I I know somebody who went out there with some um kids you know uh, and just had a great time. I mean, it sounds like you you, you really have, have it, you know, so it appeals to all ages. And uh, anyway, it sounds very, very cool. Uh, thank you so much, sir, for, for coming on. We certainly appreciate your insights.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, happy to be with you, Asmi. Absolutely. That's John Highbush, the executive director of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. All right, folks, we do have to take a break. We're running a little late here. We've got some weather. We're going to talk with Jane Kirtley about cameras in the courtroom, uh, also a preview of the MSP International Film Festival, which is a huge deal. And then David Schulz back from Eastern Europe in the 8 o'clock hour. It is 7.33 in the Twin Cities. Uh, Esme Murphy with you until 9 o'clock along with uh, our producer Jonathan Lowe. Uh, cameras in the courtroom – You know, you think about it. If you watch the news, you see images, you see testimony from court cases all over the country. It happens all the time, on every day. But think about it you don't see that actual testimony in Minnesota court cases because Minnesota does not have cameras in the courtroom. However, in the past year or so, there has been a slight change where, on some occasions, as part of an experimental effort, There have been cameras in some sentencing. So not for the trial, not for the dramatic jury verdict, but for the sentencing. Uh, It's under very strict and, and limited circumstances. Now it appears that lawmakers are considering putting an end to even that limited use. Uh, Jane Kirtley is the University of Minnesota Media Ethics and Law Professor. She is joining us now. Uh, Jane, thank you so much for coming on. oh thank you all right, and I know that you actually were were, were somebody who actually worked for this it 's such a in such a limited role what What is the reasoning behind this this pushback
1: well you know i i 've been involved in cameras and court issues around the country before I moved here to Minnesota in my former life and I've really never seen a state that has so much resistance to the notion of cameras in the courtroom. I will say that the arguments that are made are the same arguments that I've heard in every other jurisdiction that has struggled with this question. Um, there are concerns about disruption of the trial proceedings. There are concerns that the lawyers will posture and play to the camera There are concerns that witnesses and jurors will be upset um, if there's a camera recording them. Um, There's concerns about victims in criminal cases being recorded. Um, But I think when you get right down to it, what is really going on here is a recognition that the U.S. Supreme Court has never specifically said that there's a constitutional right to have cameras in the courtroom. They've said that the press and the public have a constitutional right to be in the courtroom, but they've never extended that explicitly to cameras. They, they haven't said they can't be there, but they haven't said that they can. So this is the one area where it's still possible to argue that there's not a constitutional right for cameras to be there. And I think, therefore, this is the one opportunity those who oppose what's often referred to as extended media coverage, that is, cameras, microphones, still cameras, as well as video cameras, um, should be kept out of the courtroom. And there's one other argument that, you know, to be fair, I want to explain what the people's arguments are, that um, just because of the nature of criminal cases, the argument is that it has a disproportionate impact on communities of color and can distort the public perceptions of who actually commits crimes.
0: But, you know, Wisconsin has had cameras in the courtroom for years. Yes. And, um, you know, there are limits. If if somebody is a victim of a sexual assault, then you don't put them on camera. You don't show the jury. Um, If somebody has been particularly traumatized, there are all kinds of of rules within that the judge has a say in. Why is there a pushback on just this very limited use that's been in effect for it's only been about a year or so? So, well, it goes back to like maybe two years.
1: Well, there have been pilots over a period of time in this state. I mean going going back quite a number of years, but initially it was purely in civil cases. But you're correct that the criminal experiment began about two years ago. And the state Supreme Court's advisory committee has been taking comments from the public, from lawyers and others, and is poised to make this uh, uh, permanent. Uh, at least as it exists now, and of course, there are advocates uh, from the media community and elsewhere who are arguing that we need to extend it even more i can 't explain to you exactly what is prompting this reaction the The legislative bill that was originally introduced was a funding bill solely and just said that no legislative funds could be used to uh, facilitate the use of cameras in the court. but then the testimony started and Suddenly, it kind of took off and turned into this uh, revision of the bill that said no cameras, period.
0: But but it's not costing the taxpayers to have cameras in the courtroom. Well, it's The media not, is footing the bill.
1: Well, as it stands now, that's correct. There have been other jurisdictions where tax dollars have been spent to – Set up facilities for cameras and so forth, but in a lot of time, that's in situations from years ago when it when cameras were more cumbersome, where the situation was very different. Um, given that what the technology is like today, you're you're correct that there really is no um, you know explicit taxpayer expense for this. Um, but I think again, the the funding line was simply a way to to get a toe in the door, as it were, and and then this turned into something. That had a much broader uh, coverage than had originally been. But case. it
0: hasn't gone, I mean, there have not been major complaints that I'm aware of.
1: There have been no complaints, really, that I'm aware of. And of course, part of the reason beca- is because, as you said, there are already provisions in place to give judges a lot of discretion in terms of when they will allow cameras and under what circumstances, you know, what the rules are going to be. And it's, As you said, as it stands now, the criminal pilot is only for sentencing. But if it were to expand to criminal trials, there could be, and I'm sure would be, rules that would prohibit things like filming jurors, things like that. Judges are ultimately, you know, the the captain of the ship in the courtroom, and they have the power and the authority to control anything that would disrupt the courtroom, and that would include media coverage, even if we weren't talking about cameras. And I think that's part of the reason that we're seeing pushback from the Bar Association um, to this legislative initiative. Maybe not so much because the bar actually supports cameras in the courts per se, but because they really don't like the legislature going into territory that they think belongs to the judiciary and not to the legislature.
0: Right. But, uh, you know, we, we really are one of the few states. Yes. That that, that are holdouts here. That's
1: right. Florida has had cameras in the courtroom since the 1960s. And the way it works in Florida is that there is a presumption that the cameras have a right to be there. In other words, you don't have to go in as a journalist with your hat in hand and and petition – you have a right to be there, and if somebody wants to keep you out, they bear the burden of proof of justifying why you shouldn't be allowed to be there. Now, not all states work that way, and and I can't imagine Minnesota would, at least not in my lifetime, but you're exactly correct when you say that the vast majority of states do allow cameras, and it really has not been a problem.
0: Right, and and I just don't think that this, you know... Use of it in sentencing has been a problem.
1: It has not been a problem. And, you know, I I should say that one of the other arguments, I sort of alluded to it, but that is often used is that the public will get a distorted picture of what goes in courtrooms because broadcasters typically only air a few seconds and that this might misrepresent or distort what's going on. But, you know, I've never found that argument persuasive because. If the public is dependent on, you know, print journalists summarizing what's going on in the courtroom, that is, to me, just as likely to distort. I don't personally think that it does. But the notion that somehow the video and audio is going to be distorted in a way that wouldn't happen with the printed word, I, it just makes no sense to me. But these are the arguments that have been used in every jurisdiction where people have tried to keep cameras out of the courtroom.
0: Right. And, and you know, I, I mentioned, you know, as I was talking about the fact that you were going to be on, I mean, I, I've covered cases where – I mean, the judges in these cases where the cameras are allowed in just for the sentencing have exercised extraordinary um, latitude in limiting what we can do even when there is a camera in the courtroom.
1: You know, judges, again, and this goes back to Supreme Court president, U.S. Supreme Court president going back to the 1960s and 70s. Judges are responsible for what happens in the courtroom and they take it very seriously. But, having said all that, the experience in the states that have had cameras for any extended period of time is that first of all you know the media follow the rules, and secondly, once the cameras get going, everybody forgets that they are there it's It's not a question of having lights and cables and disruption that's not the if if that was ever the case, it's certainly not the case of the technology that's available today
0: and, and when I think about it too i mean you know in, the, in one case where there was um you know, a man pled guilty to murdering the, this North Minneapolis grandmother, I we, I was there for the sentencing. The judge ruled that we couldn't even show his face. Right. You know, I mean, which, you know, I still don't understand because he pled guilty to this horrible crime.
1: Well, and, you know, I, I would uh, question the judge's decision there. But as you said, the judge has the discretion to make that decision. And I think, You know, the judiciary is not united on this. There are judges who don't think cameras belong in the courtroom, but increasingly there are judges who think that it does actually serve a purpose. It enhances public oversight. It helps the public be informed about a branch of government that most of us don't see much of. I mean, you do as a reporter. I have as a lawyer, but for the average person, they never go to a courtroom, and they don't really know what goes on there. And if you want to talk about distorted views, you know, television fiction is much more Distorted than anything they would see, I think, on a news story.
0: Right. Well, this this is something. I mean, I you know, I I, I think it's really surprised a lot of people. And I know media groups are fighting back uh, against it because I think it, I think it has gone very smoothly. And frankly, I, I'm just not aware of any complaints.
1: I'm not either. Uh, you know right. about. Yeah. And, and the, you know, the, if, if there's any complaint to be made here, I think it is that the news media don't cover all the cases they would have an opportunity to cover. And, you know, there, there are economic reasons for that. There are just, you know, news day reasons for that. I, I Personally speaking, I'd like to be able to point to more uh, use of the, of the experiment. But the point is there hasn't been a problem.
0: All right. I I would certainly agree with that. Well, listen, uh, thank you so much, Jane Kirtley, for joining us to to bring us up to date on this ongoing controversy, one that we certainly will keep an eye on.
1: Well, I hope so. Um, I think the interests of the people in Minnesota are definitely getting cameras into the courtrooms.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Appreciate it. All right, folks, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, When we come back, we're going to talk with the executive director of the Minneapolis International Film Festival. Uh, this has gotten, or Minneapolis St. Paul International Film Festival. This has gotten bigger and bigger every year. Uh, this is really an extraordinary film festival. And we'll talk with the executive director about the kind of films that are there, how you can take advantage of it, get good deals, uh, where you can find out exactly what's going on. That's all coming up on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 30 degrees in the Twin Cities, 747. Uh, The Minneapolis-St. Paul International Film Festival, it's the 37th annual uh, festival, and it has gotten bigger and better every single year. The festival actually starts uh, April 12th, but uh, tickets actually, I believe, are on sale uh, as we speak. Uh, 268 films from 75 nations Pulling that all together is the is the um, festival's executive director, Susan Smol- Uh and Susan. I hope I'm saying your name correctly. Um. Well, Smolowski. Smolowski. I mean, it's complicated. Thirteen okay. letters. 13 <laughs> okay. <years. laughs> well, co- talk about complicated, Susan. Yeah. Um, Two hundred and sixty-eight films from seventy-five nations. 158 feature films, 110 shorts. That is a lot of film.
3: It is a lot of film, and uh, it takes us a full year, if not more, to pull it all together. Um, But once we get started next Thursday, you'll be presented with this incredible treasure trove of films from around the world. And I was listening to your program for a few minutes before I uh, came on here, and was thinking about the similarities. I mean, the diversity of perspective, of topics, uh, delving into subjects that are a little complex. Uh, Our films all do that, just as your program does. So it was an interesting preview for me.
0: Well, thank (laughs) you so much. Let let me ask you, and so it it starts the 12th, and it goes for, for how long?
3: It runs for a full 18 days. So we like to say around the world in 18 days. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, it, we have films showing in five different venues in town. St. Anthony, Maine uh, Theater is our hub, but we're also up in North Minneapolis at the Capri Theater, in St. Paul at Metro State, uh, at the Uptown Theater for a week in uh, in Minneapolis, and also in Rochester for a week. So wow. We, Spread our wings here recently.
0: (laughs) Okay. Now, uh, what is the? I guess you have an app. Yes, that will help. uh, You know, sort. And is this? Did you have an app last year? No, this is brand new. Okay, I would think um, this would be just because of the breadth of, of what what you have here. I would think this would be very helpful. Tell us about the app and how people can get that. Tour. the if
3: you go to our website your audience go anyone uh, in your audience visits our website there are directions on our website um, as to how to download the app uh, go so our website is mSPfilm.org and uh, we're very excited about this app as you mentioned it certainly facilitates the exercise of trying to juggle a schedule um, at our festival. And I've done, I've used apps at other festivals and I have to say that they really make a difference. So we're, we're very excited about this. So mspfilm.org and there will be information on our website about how to work the app and where to find it.
0: And, and another thing um there, there has been an adjustment in prices, but do you have different pricing packages because yes. I, obviously it would be, I would think impossible to get to every single film but perhaps there are those that somehow will be able to. But you you can obviously sort of tailor it so you can get like a package and then decide which films you want to go to, right? You
3: can. So you can buy single tickets, so general um, tickets, or if you're a member, they're, of course, less expensive. Um, You can also buy six-packs. Again, you get a discount if you're a member. Uh, So six-packs get you into obviously six films for the price of five, really. And then we have three different passes that are full festival passes that will get you into everything that you would um, be able to get to. And they're at different levels, the silver, gold, and platinum passes. Uh, The silver gets you into any film you want to go to. The gold gets you into films and events. And the platinum uh, provides you with a reserved seat in every single one of the screenings, so you can just waltz in at any point if you're having a crazy day, but you want to go see a movie. Uh, so yes, there are many options.
0: Right, and, and there's so many. Um, and, and first of all, you're expecting potentially as many as fifty thousand people. Yes. Back in 2010, when when you first came on board, it was it was a fraction of that. I mean, it, it was it was half of that, wasn't
3: it? Yeah, I mean, at that we, we estimate what the numbers were at that time because we didn't have any way to track uh, our, the um, audiences, but we're thinking it was probably no more than 20,000 at that time. And, you know, the great news about that is that this is a festival, as you said, where uh, we represent 75, actually it's 79 different countries. We bring in filmmakers from all over the world uh, to this community to enrich the experience for the audiences and um, we see this demand for uh, for that kind of viewing opportunity and learning opportunity and we, we
0: find that very exciting. Uh, I also know that you've got you know more films. Uh, made by and featuring women, and I, I think that's kind of cool.
3: We do. We, I mean, we've for the last five or six years, we've really focused on looking for films by women. And of course, as everyone who's listening now will have heard, there's a there's a dearth of films uh, made by women in this country certainly at the studio level, but there are many films made by women that are extraordinary films. A lot of documentaries, smaller budget films in this country even, uh, not to mention, um, women are really part of the fabric of the filmmaking industry these days in many, many other countries. I I think it's interesting to note that on our opening weekend alone, we have seven or eight filmmakers here just over the weekend. Um, And one uh, is Algerian. Another is from India. Another is Afghani. And another is Iranian. (laughs) So uh, we run the gamut here. uh, And
0: and how, I mean, obviously the the festival is prestigious. It's well known, but how, I mean, just getting those people, them finding you, there are other film festivals. How does that work or as, as, Because of the hard work of people like you, has this kind of risen to the top in terms of of people really realizing, hey, this festival's on the map?
3: Yes, I think so. I think we've become much more visible at the national and international level. Uh, Filmmakers are aware of our festival now the way they never used to be. And, you know, it's a kind of word of mouth thing. One filmmaker comes here, has a great time, goes to another festival, meets somebody Talks about what it was like, what the experience was like here, and all of a sudden people become aware because, of course, there's a festival circuit that filmmakers do. It's the way nowadays, um, if you're an independent or international filmmaker, for you to market your film. Wow. Uh, you know, nobody really has the kind of money that Hollywood um, has to market their films in the more traditional ways. So, film festivals have become a huge marketing tool.
0: Right. And is it I mean is it, is it because of the technology that that you have uh, you know the the cameras I mean you really can can do some pretty good work with a camera with with equipment that is relatively speaking not that expensive. Uh You can. It's a, it's a
3: cheaper venture. It's a less expensive venture to make a film these days than it was even 10 years ago. Um, uh, and, you know, a lot of young people have become very creative about how they make films. And I think, in a way, the change in technology has helped young filmmakers, or all filmmakers, perhaps focus on their stories, because they have to focus less on the technology and what kind of camera and how to lug it around and that kind of thing.
0: So a lot of creativity going on here. Absolutely. Well, listen... um... Uh, Susan uh, Smolhowski, uh, tell us again how to get the app. Uh, how to get the information? Uh, again, this starts uh, April 12th. Just a few days. Uh, tell people how the best way to really get you know plugged in here to see if there there's something that they like because you really do have something for everybody here.
3: We do. We do. We we talk about it in that way and I think it's absolutely true. Um, so the best way to uh find anything, whether it's a film and you can look up films by your mood, by country, by uh by topic, um Go to our website, mspfilm.org, and uh, on the website, you'll find lots of information about the new app. as
0: well. Okay, awesome. Thank you so much, and good luck. It sounds like you're going to have just an amazing time.
3: Thank you, thank you, and thanks for um, inviting me on.
0: All right, thank you. Next, David Schultz of Hamlin University.